0: Reflections on Herman Melville's Moby Dick by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 6 So, there's a chapter called 78, which is Cisterns and Buckets. At the end of chapter uh, 77, the concluding uh, sentence is, Attend now, I pray you, To that marvelous and in this particular instance almost fatal operation whereby the sperm whale's great Heidelberg tongue is tapped. So we're alerted right off the bat we're talking about, we're talking about, uh, appropriating this mysterious sperm oil to light the lamps of the world. The bringing up of consciousness out of the deeps. That's what this is all about. Is meeting the mystery somewhere on the on the on the on the seam between the, between these two worlds, and bringing that mystery up out for consciousness. That's what's involved here. So we have in cisterns and buckets the, the the original operation, which is to get the get the sperm oil out of the cavity in the head of the whale that's being held by the tackle on the side of the ship. And Testigo, the Indian harpooner, is performing the operation. Like all of us, he wants to do it with a 20 foot pole. Why not, if we could do it that way? So he takes this, the, a bucket tied to a rope, and a 20 foot pole. He puts the pole in the bucket and pushes the bucket down into the. Well, here, I, I should read. Melville tells it better than I do. Inserting this pole into the bucket, Testigo downward glides the bucket into the tun till it entirely disappears. Then, giving the word to the seaman at the whip, up comes the bucket again, all bubbling like a dairymaid's pail of new milk. Carefully lowered from its height, the full freighted vessel is caught by an appointed hand and quickly emptied into a large tub. Then, remounting aloft, it again goes through the same round until the deep cistern will yield no more. Towards the end, Tashtego has to ram his long pole harder and harder and deeper and deeper into the tun. Until some 20 feet of it, excuse me, until some 20 feet of the pole have gone down. So that's the operation. All at once, a queer accident happened. I've had it happen to me. Maybe you've had it happen to you. Whether it was that Testigo, that wild Indian, was so heedless and reckless as to let go for a moment his one-hand hold on the great cabled tackle suspending the head, or whether the place where he stood was so treacherous and oozy, or whether the evil one himself would have it all out so without stating his particular reasons. How it was exactly, there's no telling now. But on the sudden, as the 80th or 90th bucket came suckingly up, my God, poor Tashtigo, like the twin reciprocating bucket in a veritable well, dropped head foremost down into this great ton of Heidelberg. Tashtigo himself Notice the language. Like the twin reciprocating bucket in a veritable well. He has become the bucket. Now this is the kind of stuff that makes me want to turn around right here and knock on wood. You see? I have had it happen, but perhaps not quite as as gravely as it happened to poor Tash, as he's called here in a minute. Uh, But... One of the great hopes is that this is what will happen to us. Is that we will be sitting there in the middle of Dante's Inferno or, you know, whatever it is. The Gospel of John. or Whatever. Moby Dick. And we'll be ramming that bucket down into it and pulling it up. And all of a sudden, something will come along. We're in the right mood. It's the right time. Just some strange thing. He, gives, he goes through. He says, we don't, I don't know what it was. We can't." He gives, gives a couple of possibilities. Don't know what it was. But suddenly, he's the bucket. And then it's a different operation altogether. Then he says, They saw the before lifeless head throbbing and heaving just below the thir- surface of the sea as if that moment seized with some momentous idea whereas it was only the poor Indian unconsciously revealing by those struggles the perilous depth to which he had sunk. A sharp, cracking noise was heard, and to the unspeakable horror of all, one of the two enormous hooks suspending the uh, the head tore out. Stand clear of the tackle, cried a voice like the bursting of a rocket. Almost in the same instant, with a thunder boom, the enormous mass dropped into the sea with Tashtigo. Now, here is a, an echo of the Jonah story, a little echo of the Jonah story being swallowed up, but it comes about in a different way. But, but it is falling into that and becoming the bucket. A naked figure with a broad sword in his hand was for one swift moment seen hovering over the bulwarks. This, this seems for all the world like one, like the uh, that, that that stern angel in Dante at the opening of the gates of, uh, of the city of Dis, suddenly appearing, hovering with a broadsword in his hand. And then uh, Ishmael describes him almost the way a, 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 an admiring wife would. He says, a loud splash announced that my brave Queequeg had dived to the rescue. And in a few minutes, we saw an arm thrust upright from the blue waves, a sight strange to see as an arm thrust forth from the grass over a grave. So this is is a resurrection image coming up out of that experience. And they shout, both, both, it is both. Both, both is both. I think it's important to, see, if we want to see this as as a as recognizable experience, there are other experiences that are cl- that that have other dimensions to it. But if we want to see this in its uniqueness as a recognizable experience, it's very important to notice that it, somebody else has to get, has to get you out. It takes both, it takes two at this point. It takes two at this point. So he's rescued him, and then Queequeg, uh, they learn after the fact how it happened. And it's, this is how it happened. Queequeg, with his keen sword, had made side lunges near the bottom, near its bottom, so as to scuttle a large hole there. Then, dropping his sword, had thrust his long arm, long arm far inward and upward, and so hauled out poor Tash by the head. He averred that upon first thrusting for him, a leg was presented. But well knowing that that was not the way it ought to be and might occasion great trouble, he had thrust back the leg and by a dexterous heave and toss had wrought a Somerset upon the Indian so that with the next trial he came forth in the good old way, head foremost. As for the great head itself, that was doing as well as could be expected, he said. And then his commentary on it afterwards is, and thus, through the courage and great skill in obstetrics of Quique, the deliverance, or rather delivery, of Tashtigo was successfully accomplished in the teeth, too, of the most untoward and apparently hopeless impediments, which is a lesson by no means to be forgotten. Those are the circumstances in which it happened. Midwifery should be taught in the same course with fencing and boxing, riding and rowing. So very clearly, you see, an image... Now, here's a story within a story. This is all by itself a wonderful story. It seems routine enough and uh, 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 safe enough and distant enough, and suddenly one becomes the bucket and needs someone else to perform the delivery. So the question is if the whale is a problem, what is the solution? What is the solution? Well, Tashtigo took a dip in the solution in the presence of this problem. Now, there are a couple of instances where the solution is not so happy. Uh, And I've I've layered these. The text layers them as well. The next one is uh, a warning about this process. This is by no means something we should... uh, It it is, as as F. Otto says, and as Melville points out, this can be terrifying. One doesn't want to take the the bath, take the plunge into that utterly disorienting uh, experience before one's ready. So, in the chap- chapter 93, called The Castaway, uh, introduced this way, a most significant event befell the most insignificant of the Pequod's crew, an event most lamentable, and which ended in providing the sometimes madly merry and predestined craft with a living and ever-accompanying prophecy of whatever shattered sequel might prove her own. Pip is the little Negro boy on board, just a child. And uh, Ishmael says Pip, though over tender-hearted, was at bottom very bright, um, and that he loved life, and so on. And Stubbs, oarsman, sprained his hand chasing a whale, so Pip took his place in the in the in the chase boat, the harpoon boat. And when the harpoon was uh, darted and hit the whale, the line wrapped around Pip, took him into the water, and he is caught in the line so that if, uh, unless the line's cut, it will kill him, it will crush him when the whale pulls on. And uh, after giving it probably more thought than Pip would have liked, uh, Stubb uh, cuts the line and pulls Pip back in, and uh, they all give him a cursing, and Stubb gives him an an official cursing, and Stubb makes the point to him that uh, that. That in Alabama, where Pip is from, the whales are a lot more expensive than little black boys, and not to jump out of the boat anymore. So it's a, it has a. There's a, another quality to this chapter as well. But in any case, he does jump out again in the midst of another chase. And this time, they leave him behind. And uh, the, under the suspicion that perhaps one of the other boats will pick him up. Uh, but he's left there in the sea anyway here's pip who has now entered into the solution too early in that in that psychological and alchemical sense pip's and this is marvelous mysterious writing here pip's ringed horizon began to expand around him miserably by the merest chance the ship itself at last rescued him but from that hour the little negro went about the deck an idiot, such at least they said he was. The sea had jeeringly kept his, in, his finite body up, but drowned the infinite of his soul. Not drowned entirely, though, rather carried down alive to wondrous depths where strange shapes of unwarped primal world glided to and fro before his passive eyes. And the miserman wisdom revealed his hoarded heaps. The miserman wisdom, we would all do well to have the miserman wisdom nickel and us to death uh, so we could assimilate it as we go. But to have the hoarded heaps revealed all in one shot is another thing. The miserman wisdom revealed his hoarded heaps and among the joyous, heartless, ever-juvenile eternities, Pip saw the multitudinous, God-omnipresent coral insects that out of the firmament of waters heaved the colossal orbs. He saw God's foot upon the treadle of the loom. Loom has been in here all a while, you see. He saw God's foot upon the treadle of the loom and spoke it, and therefore his shipmates called him mad. So man's insanity is heaven's sense, and wandering from all mortal reason, man comes at last to that celestial thought, which to reason is absurd and frantic And weal or woe feels then uncompromised, indifferent as his God. Now, the same thing is going to happen to Ishmael at the end of the book. Same experience. The difference is that Ishmael has gone through a... Ishmael is is older and more experienced and has gone through a gradual initiation in the course of this whole story. He's had some... Saludio experiences before he finally gets dropped into the drink, you know. And here's and the next one is one of them. Um, it's again a, a if the mystery is a problem, one needs a solution. Here's another version. So we've had Tashtigo falling in, Pip falling in, Tashtigo falling in and going through rebirth, becoming the becoming the bucket and going through rebirth, Pip falling in and losing his Another kind of rebirth, but, but, but losing his orientation completely. And now you, now here's another one. A squeeze of the hand. There, the, the sperm, uh, as soon as the whale dies and the sperm is emptied out, it begins to coagulate into lumps. And this is true of not only literal, but, uh, psychological and spiritual, uh, analog of this. When we when this great stuff is finally gotten up and made available for consciousness, it immediately begins to coagulate into little lumps, and so work has to be carried on with regard to it all the time, to keep that from happening, to keep it from coagulating, from from uh, a kind of hardening of the arteries, uh, in a religious sense. So I sat down before the large a large Constantine's bath of it. Again, it couldn't be clear. Constantine, Constantine was the first Roman emperor to convert to Christianity, and Constantine's bath is a baptismal pool. So he's right off the bat telling us what this is all about. This is a baptismal experience of another order. I sat down before a large Constantine's bath of it. I found it strangely concreted into lumps here and there rolling about in the liquid part. It was our business to squeeze these lumps back into fluid, a sweet and unctuous duty No wonder that in old times this sperm was such a favorite cosmetic, such a clearer, such a sweetener, such a softener, such a delicious mollifier. After having my hands in it for only a few minutes, my fingers felt like eels and began, as it were, to serpentine and spiralize. Now this is, uh, I want to go on with what he describes here, but Edward Edinger came up with a line on this uh, Saludio thing a long time ago that I've I've always remembered and always thought to be a a, a wonderful insight into things. He said, um, psychologically speaking, the solution to the problem is a solution. Uh, And he he put it this way. He said, uh, a problem is solved when... You dissolve the libido obstruction of which the question was a symptom. The problem is solved when you dissolve the libido obstruction of which the question was a symptom. Ishmael is the, is the alienated one, the exile, the outcast. Okay? And so this is the solution. This is the Constantine's bath for that particular dilemma. So he still has his hands in this, in this Constantine's bath of lumpy sperm oil and squeezing away. It's called squeezing case. That's what it's called. I declare to you that for the time I lived as in a musky meadow, I forgot all about our horrible oath in that inexpressible sperm. I washed my hands and my heart of it. I had almost began to credit the old Paracelsian superstition that sperm is of rare virtue in allaying the, the heat of anger. While bathing in that bath, I felt divinely free from all ill will or petulance or malice of any sort whatsoever. Well, notice the con- comparison here with the horrible oath. That scene on the quarterdeck where Ahab creates what appears to be a consensus, that is to say, Ahab uses the demonic uh, power to, uh, in a sense, override or preempt uh, individual consciousness and to bring together what appears to be a community. Suddenly they are shouting in chorus and singing in chorus and marching in step, and it appears to be cultural consensus or community or whatever. And then in the midnight scene you discover that it's that all you have to do is scratch the surface of that and you find out that the isolato condition is still there so he's comparing that in, in terms of the symbolism to this this is the 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 thing that puts him in touch with some deeper genuine connectedness and it is full of erotic imagery in both the usual sense of erotic imagery and in the larger sense of the whole eros is the relational function and it's in both ways. So it's just a little song to that dimension of life. Squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. This, by the way, reminds me of that passage in uh, Joyce's Ulysses where where uh, the, the Molly scene, you know, where he's in, yes, yes. <laughs> squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. All the morning long I squeezed that sperm till I myself almost melted into it. I squeezed that sperm till a strange sort of insanity came over me, and I found myself unwittingly squeezing my co-laborer's hands in it, mistaking their hands for the gentle globules. Such an abounding, affectionate, friendly, loving feeling did this avocation beget that at last I was continually squeezing their hands and looking up into their eyes sentimentally as much to say, Oh, my dear fellow beings, why should we longer cherish any social acerbities or know the slightest ill humor or envy? Come, let us squeeze hands all round. Nay, let us all squeeze ourselves into each other. Let us squeeze ourselves universally into the very milk and sperm of kindness. Would that I could keep squeezing that sperm forever. For now, since by many prolonged and repeated experiences, I have perceived that in all cases man must eventually lower or at least shift his conceit of attainable felicity, not placing it anywhere in the intellect or the fancy, but in the wife, the heart, the bed, the table, the saddle, the fireside, the country. Now that I have perceived all this, I am ready to squeeze case eternally. In visions of the night... I saw long rows of angels in paradise, each with his hands in a jar of spermachetti. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful, isn't it? That's wonderful. And right below there's a row of asterisks in the text. It's, it's, the, it's the textual way of the cinematographer, cinematographers have a way of suddenly panning the sky, you know, at, at, in, the, in the middle of a love scene, <laughs> looking at the clouds of the trees. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Homer, in the Iliad, in book 18 of the Iliad, presents the central symbolic artifact of the poem, which is the shield of Achilles. And on the shield of Achilles, fresh forged, uh, fresh hot off the the uh, the fires of uh, Hephaestus's uh, furnace, is this uh, dazzling shield. And on it are these scenes of uh, which really is a encapsulation of the whole dilemma of the Iliad, and uh, without going into that, actually, Virgil has a a corresponding uh, image in the Aeneid. But I think when uh, Lewis Mumford uh, wrote his biography of Melville, he suggested in one of his chapters that the, that uh, Moby Dick should be read as an epic, uh, and if it were to be so read. Uh, chapter 99 called the doubloon would be the chapter that corresponds to the shield of Achilles. That is to say, it's a physical artifact which is the depiction of the whole dilemma of the text itself and of its story. And you'll remember the doubloon is the gold coin that was nailed to the mast by Ahab when he was uh, trying to forge this consensus, the demonic consensus. And he said to the to the sailors on board this coin belongs to whoever of ye raises me the white whale and we talked about how it depends on where you want to put the comma in that sentence uh, you can see or not see the identification between Ahab and the white whale and the, and the need for resurrection but in any case that aside here we, we're now further along in the voyage, and there is the, the gold coin, the doubloon, nailed to the mast. And it represents, uh, for the purpose of this chapter at least, the same thing that the whale represents. It is the locus for the enigma, which can either put us in touch with mystery or can just mirror back to us our own funny business. But notice, uh, I think, the the way it starts off is extremely important. Ahab was wont to, pl- to pace his quarterdeck, taking regular turns at either limit, the binnacle and the mainmast. Now, the binnacle is where the compass is, and the mainmast is where the coin is. When he halted before the binnacle... With his glance fastened on the pointed needle in the compass, that glance shot like a javelin with the pointed intensity of, of his purpose. And when resuming his walk, he again paused before the mainmast, then, as the same riveted glance fastened upon the riveted gold coin there, he still wore the same aspect of nailed firmness, only dashed with a certain wild longing, if not hopefulness. So here you have the two orienting devices. The compass tells Ahab where he is in the Pacific Ocean. And the question is, what does the nailed gold coin tell him? It is is it it is also a way of... It, it is It provides an opportunity for him to discover where he is if he will submit, or if he will risk an interpretation of it, it will tell him who he is and where he is. And it's like all great art. One begins by interpreting it, and before you're finished, it is interpreting you and telling you where you are. Your interpretation is a is a commentary on where you are. It is a Rorschach test and you are being submitted to it. So he goes, what's so wonderful symbolically here, pacing back and forth between the compass and this, and this enigmatic symbol, trying to find out where he is. But one morning, turning to pass the doubloon, he, seem, he seemed to be newly attracted by the strange features and inscriptions stamped on it as though now for the first time beginning to interpret for himself in some monomaniac way whatever significance might lurk in them. And some certain significance lurks in all things, else all things are little worth. And the round world itself but an empty cipher, except to sell by by the cartload as they do hills about Boston to fill up some morass in the Milky Way. So some significance must lurk in all things. If not, then it's only a matter of time before we divide them up, cart them off, and sell them. It's interesting. Just to pause here, it's absolutely irrelevant to what we're dealing with here, but it is interesting that it is a symptom that when we're willing to carve it up and cart it off and sell it, that is a symptom of the fact that we have lost touch with its underlying significance. So that when... The white man blows onto the scene and uh, says, Well, that's a nice mountain. We'll buy it from you. And the Indians look at one another and say, What did he say? <laughs> so then, here we get the, back to the gold coin. And though now nailed amidst all the rustiness of iron bolts and the verdigris of copper spikes, yet untouchable and immaculate to any foulness, it still preserved its keto glow. Nor though placed amongst the ruthless crew and every hour passed by ruthless hands and through the live-long nights shrouded with thick darkness which might cover any pilfering approach, nevertheless every sunrise found the doubloon where the sunset left it last. For it was a set apart and sanctified to one awe-striking end and however wanton in their sailor ways, one and all, the mariners revered it as the white whale's talisman. So the text tells us this is the symbol of the white whale. We're all trying to figure out what the white whale is a symbol of. Well, the white whale is a symbol of the of the original religious datum in all likelihood. Well, let's back off. Let's get back one step away from it. This, The bloom, is a symbol of the white whale. And... Uh, and so there it is in all its mysteriousness and it says on the, around it republica del ecuador quito perfect the equator the nation that's named after the equator the city quito which is on the equator and then it says so this bright coin came from the country planted in the middle of the world and beneath the great equator and named after it. And it had been cast midway up the Andes in the unwaning climb that knows no autumn. So everything about this coin is, emphasizes its centrality. It is on the equator between the two hemispheres. It is halfway up the Andes. And it is, and it, it this reference to, uh, the climate that knows no autumn. It is a work of art. It stays there. Look on your atlas. Quito is right there. So what you have is a picture really of the portal between two worlds. The gateway or threshold between two worlds. And it's open and invites traffic back and forth. The great... Dilemma, the psychologist, or at least the deaf psychologist, uh, have often talked about this dilemma of putting these two worlds together, the everyday world and the world of the mystery. And how does one find some connecting place where, where ongoing traffic can occur between these two realms of reality? And so here's the, the, uh, the implication of this coin. And now we have zoned by those letters, you saw the likeness of three Andes summits, from one a flame, a tower on another, on the third a crowing cock. While arching over all was a segment of the partitioned zodiac, the signs all marked with their usual cabalistics, and the keystone sun entering the equinoctial point at Libra. Again, Libra is the scales. Perfect balanced right there the midpoint the ultimate midpoint and uh, mysterious imagery on it so now we're going to get the crew beginning with Ahab coming up to take thinking that they're taking the measure of the coin and in fact the coin is taking their measure or we're getting a chance to see them so here's Ahab He walks up and he says, there's something ever egotistical in mountaintops and towers and all other grand and lofty things. Look here. Three peaks as proud as Lucifer. The firm tower, that is Ahab. The volcano, that is Ahab. The courageous, the undaunted, the victorious fowl, that too is Ahab. All are Ahab. And this round gold is but the image of the rounder globe, which, like a magician's glass, to each and every man in turn but mirrors back his own mysterious self. Great pains, small gains for those who ask the world to solve them, it cannot solve itself. Methinks now this, co- this coined son wears a ruddy face. We know that Ahab has a ruddy face. But see, ah, he enters the sign of storms, the equinox, and but six months before, he wheeled out of the former equinox at Ares from storm to storm. So be it then. Born in throes, tis fit that man should live in pains and die in pangs. So be it then. Here's stout stuff for woe to work on. So be it then. So he sees just what he's prepared to see. Which, by the way, is a lesson for us all. We, we are very likely to see what we are prepared to see. And he sees that. And uh, he has some world to work on, so he sees it as a something that woe can work on. Starbuck comes up to it. He says, speaking of Ahab, he goes below, let me read, a dark valley between three mighty heaven-abiding peaks that almost seem the trinity in some faint earthly symbol. You see, so Starbuck sees the valley, not the peak. And the peaks represent the Trinity and he's going to let well enough alone when it comes to Trinity. So in this valley of... Excuse me. So in this veil of death, God girds us round and over all our gloom, the sun of righteousness still shines a beacon and a hope. If we bend down our eyes, the dark veil shows her moldy soil. But if we lift them, the bright sun meets our glance halfway to cheer. Back in the quarterdeck scene when Ahab, you know, entranced everybody... uh, Starbuck lowered his eyes. But he says, if we raise them up, we will be cheered by this reassuring sun. And then he says, yet, oh, the great sun is no fixture. And if at midnight we should fain snatch some sweet solace from him, we gaze for him in vain. This coin speaks wisely, mildly, truly, but still sadly to me, I will quit it, lest truth shake me falsely. Leave well enough alone. This looks... He reads into it what he's able to read into it, and then he senses that if he stays there much longer, it might begin to unravel his conventional Christian mythology. He walks away lets it go. Stubb comes up. These next two are quite funny. Stubb says, I'd not look very long at it, they're spending it. And he says, I'd better get an albanac. So he gets out... I'll try my hand at raising a meaning out of these queer curvatures here with a Massachusetts calendar. Here's the book, and then he looks at it, and then a few minutes later he says, The fact is, you books must know your places. You'll do to give us the bare words and facts, but we come in to supply the thoughts. And he shuts the book. Flash comes up. He's even better. Flash says, I see nothing here but a round thing made of gold. And whoever raises a certain whale, this round thing belongs to him. So what's all this staring been about? It is worth $16, that's true. And at, and at two cents a cigar, that's 960 cigars. thing about it is, it isn't 960 cigars, that's bad math. I mean, not only has he missed the whole point, his arithmetic is off. Uh, but he's, that's, that's flask for you. The old manx man comes up, and all we know about him is that he just walks around the other side of the main mass and notices that a horseshoe is nailed to the other side, and we're left to ponder that. Queequeg comes up, and Queequeg begins to. Queequeg's tattooed all over, and he notices that the, he's got some tattoos on his thigh that resemble the, some of the images on the on the coin, and so he says com, he begins to compare his thigh his thigh bone to the coin. Uh, and it says he's he's found something in the vicinity of his thigh. Uh, y- you know, from uh, earlier ages, where when literature was discreet, that things that happened in the vicinity of the thigh were. <laughs> 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 he found something in the vicinity of of his thigh, uh, and he, uh, the text says, I guess it's Sagittarius or the Archer. No, he don't know what to make of the doubloon. He takes it for an old button off some king's trousers. Fadala, who's the devil incarnate, at least that's how everybody's come to regard him. this is really funny. Uh, Ishmael says, tail coiled out of sight as usual, oakum, oakum in the toes of his pumps as usual. He's, he's got cloven feet, uh, so he has oakum in the toes of his pumps. Tail, tail coiled out of sight as usual, oakum in the toes of his shoes as usual only makes a sign to the sign and bows himself. There's a sun on the coin, fire worshiper, depend upon it. So he just makes a little. And then finally, Pip is the one. Pip is the one. Ishmael says, he too has been watching all these interpreters, myself included. And look now, he comes to read with that unearthly idiot face. And then there's this great Shakespearean line here. Stand away again, hear him, hark. And that's just the kind of thing that Shakespeare does when he's trying to underscore this. Attend. Let us... hiss yes, off to the side. Let us... See. So Now, listen, audience. Let's hear what Pip is going to say. Pip comes up. I look, you look, he looks, we look, ye look, they look. He conjugates the verb. <clears throat> Ishmael, upon my soul, he's been studying Murray's grammar, improving his mind, poor fellow. But what's that he says now? Hissed. Pip again. I look, you look, he looks, we look, ye look, they look. Why, he's getting it by heart. Hissed again. I look, you look, he looks, we look. Ye look, they look. Three times. And the mystery. We can all come we can come up here every day. And all with our own baggage and luggage. And it will be there. And we will render our you know, render it into some interpretive mode for us today, and then come back the next day, and there it'll be. And that's that hermeneutic circle. One gets into it. And there is no end to it. You come away. There is one something that some interpretive technique satisfies. Come away, and then come back to it, and it's still there in all of its answer-devouring mysteryness, mysteriousness. You know, it's it. To me, it, it depicts the, the the actual dilemma itself, which is repeating that conjugation three times. Is so satisfying when you read it. You just know that that is the, the 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 symbolic solution to this whole thing. But then, when you try to put that sense of satisfaction into words, uh, you find out that Melville already did right there, and that's about as far as you're going to be able to take it. It's just perfect. He conjugated the verb to look. He draws particular attention to the crow because you'll notice when Ahab comes up he mentions the crow but he mentions he starts off with these mighty mountains and he mentions and then the crow comes in kind of last and he does he interprets it as a uh, as a proud the crow the crowing of the cock the cock is a very proud bird but you see in our in our symbolic matrix a crow stands for that to, the, to hearing the, the cock crow, Peter hearing the cock crow and realizing, and being introduced to the experience of repentance and shame and guilt and awakening to a new reality because of it. So Ahab got the the sense of the proud cock crowing in the, but the awakening to to the sense of one's life as a failure didn't come through. But Pip then, after he does this, he says, I look, you look, he look, he looks, we look, ye look, they look, and I, you, and he, we, ye, and they are all bats, and I'm a crow. Especially when I stand atop this pine tree here. Caw, 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 caw. Well, that is the cock crowing to wake us up. That's the cock that's saying, the, the cock that Peter hears, you see, the night of the crucifixion. You have betrayed you have denied. You came to this thing and, and only saw in it what you... It's your own stuff. You brought your baggage to it and that's what it reflected back to you. And you have denied it. Well, Pitt goes on to say, uh, speaking of the coin, here's the ship's navel, this doubloon here, and they are all on fire to unscrew it. But unscrew your navel, and what's the consequence? So the consequence is your ass falls off. That's the folklore. You see, they're all interested in unscrewing it in that in that uh, reductive way, figuring it out. It is an invitation to the mystery. It's a hermeneutic circle. Step into the round dance. See, it's Participate in this mystery that's hitting you in the face all the while. It just happens to be hitting you in the face in a gold coin in a way that you can recognize. But it's hitting in the face all the time. And so, unscrewing it is not, is not the thing. He says, then again, if it stays here, that is ugly too, for when aught's nailed to the mast, it's a sign that things grow desperate. I'm gonna, uh, indulge in one psychological analysis here. when, so, when a round mandala-like image appears in a person's dream, it usually means that there's so much chaos going on uh, that the psyche is having to play its trump card to keep it all together uh, so that it should be greeted with some alarm, at least some caution. Uh, so there's, I think psychologically when Pip says uh, it, it's, it's a sign of some desperation, that uh, that everybody's coming up to this coin now because it's a, it's like an unconscious sense that the that this the, the, that coin really is the is the psychological compass on the ship, and everybody has come to unconsciously un, to the realization that there is great need for some kind of sounding of the situation. Well, early on in the text, Melville said that his book was. Uh, a draft. Nay, he says, but the draft of a draft. And uh, as with other things, he warned us to get our get out our lexicons and grammars. Uh, the word draft is one of those amazing words in our language, which has about thirty meanings. Uh, and and I Melville's a kind of uh, the kind of cagey guy that probably would have meant about twelve of them when he used them. That draft means um, uh, drawing up some drawing up water to drink or beer to drink or whatever it means being conscripted for service it means the rough uh writing out of a document it means the wind blowing through uh what else does it mean it means pulling a heavy load it has just untold numbers of meanings and when he said it's a dra- his book is a draft of the draft a, a draft of a draft uh his early concern in the text is with the whole business of the dead letter. Uh, the letter killeth, and the spirit giveth life, says St. Paul. And that's a great concern to Melville as he's writing this text, and there are a lot of references early on in the book to that. And so to, to, to speak of a draft, which would be a written document, the first rough draft of a written document, which is the draft of a draft, the draft being... That wind, that pneuma, that spirit, which suddenly uh, brings the text alive, brings the words alive, would be an appropriate sense of those two of the double use of that term draft. The draft, the written draft of a inspired draft, the the, the breath of the spirit that blows where it will. Well, with that as a background, I think that maybe the way to characterize the 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 great uh, crescendo of this book is to see it as Melville uh, uh, having gotten that draft uh, up into full, had, having filled our sails with that draft. I'm mixing metaphors here. I didn't mean to do that. He, and I think this is, must be a pipe organ metaphor, pulls out all stops, which is to say that he's got that thing going and then he makes it sound every chord in in the uh, cultural tradition. So it would be an interesting romp through the material to go through and and, and I'll point out a few of them that are so obvious that these, might as well uh allude to them, but there are many others It'd be interesting to go through the material and say well there's Milton and there's Shakespeare and there's isaiah and and there's uh the Gospel of John and there's uh so on and so forth Dante over and over again it's just he's sounding them all it's like uh Fourth of July's next week. Uh, again, to add metaphor upon metaphor, it's like that conclusion to the fireworks. You know, where they're going off so, so uh, quickly and all over the place, you can't even see them all. Well, that's that's been my experience of this conclusion of this text. And so the question is, how do how do we try to hold it together to take a look at it? Um, what pops into my head right now is this thing Frost said about about life. He said, there's a lot of people running around trying to make uh, the world better. He says, all I want to do is to have it hold still long enough for me to make art out of it. Uh, Well, uh, how do we get this thing to hold still for us long enough for us to make consciousness out of it or something out of it or have it make something out of us? Well, I was thinking maybe the way to do that is to think about the word conversion. Because... Uh, As Ishmael fades into the background almost completely uh, until the very end, uh, Ahab comes full forward on stage and we see the great Shakespearean tragedy of his existence, which is that everything tells him it is time for a conversion. Not a conversion in just simple creedal sense of joining this or that religious franchise, but a conversion in that more fundamental psychological sense. All the signals are there, and he ignores them in favor of his monomaniacal hatred of the white whale. On the other hand, at the very end, here literally pops up Ishmael, who has experienced a conversion, one that he hardly had any hand in at all, but it is the consequence of, of being part of and a witness to this whole great... Crisis of Ahab. The great, uh, if I may just use that uh, high drama or tragedy image for a second. Uh, one of the great uh, contributions of tragedy, beginning with the with the with the Greeks, uh, Sophocles and Aeschylus and so on. It really begins with the Dionysian rituals, and the point of it all is in watching the disastrous tragic conclusion of the life of a great one to watching the dismemberment of the great one it it was essentially the re the reenactment of the dionysian ritual one is purged oneself one is put through a kind of conversion simply by watching it by being presented it which is which is if we took off the the various layers that have that have camouflaged this is what's exactly what the what the christian mass is supposed to do too But in any case, the point is that Ahab, in a very dramatic and powerful way, refuses conversion. Uh, And what I'd like for us to do is watch that process take place. So I want to start with chapter 106, entitled Ahab's Leg. Ahab lost his leg, lost his his ivory leg. And then there's a reference back uh, uh, to an earlier tragedy with the leg. So what's told here is um, of something that happened before the Pequod sailed. And here's what the text says. It had not been very long prior to the Pequod sailing from Nantucket that he had been found, he, Ahab, had been found one night lying prone upon the ground and insensible. By some unknown and seemingly inexplicable, unimaginable casualty, his ivory limb having been so violently displaced that it had stakewise smitten and all but pierced his groin, nor was it without extreme difficulty that the agonizing wound was entirely cured. Now, you know, in discrete literature, this uh, wound to the groin is, uh, is a reference to impotence. Uh, and here I think it is a reference psychologically to a state of spiritual bankruptcy. Uh, it is, uh, it's the Grail King. It's the story of the Grail King, and uh, he says uh, it was, with, uh, it, nor was it without extreme difficulty that the agonizing wound was entirely cured. And the question is, was it? Now, off of that is a symbol of Ahab's condition, the need for new life to be generated or regenerated. Uh, the old one is now bankrupt and impotent and sterile. Uh, that's a reference back, and now we have Ahab having lost his leg uh, during the the uh, sailing of the Pequod, and so he must approach the carpenter and have the carpenter build him a new leg. The stage directions I call them stage directions because it seems like these are plays within the play in a way. In chapter 108, entitled Ahab and the Carpenter, the stage directions read. Carpenter at vice bench. Vice bench is an interesting term. Uh, What Ahab goes in for is a repair. See, and he goes to the carpenter at the vice bench. Uh, One can't think of carpenter without thinking of of a Christian spin on that profession. So he goes to the. In some instinctive way, he goes to the carpenter at the vice bench. He needs a new leg. And he said, Ahab says to him, Well, man-maker. And then he goes on. You see, Ahab senses that what's needed is not simply a new leg, but a new being, a new life. He realizes that that's simply, unconsciously realizes, that that is simply a symptom of a need for new existence. So he says, Hold while Prometheus is about it, I'll order a complete man after a desirable pattern. And so now we get Ahab's idea of what this regenerated being would be like. In premise, 50 feet high in, the, in his socks. Then, chest modeled after the Thames tunnel. Then, legs with roots to him to stay in one place. Then, arms three feet through the wrist. No heart at all. Brass forehead and about a quarter of an acre of fine brains. And let me see. Shall I order eyes to see outwards? No. But put a skylight on top of his head to illuminate inwards. There, take the order and away. Tremendous image. Of an instinctive recognition that it is a new man that's needed, but coming out of that Promethean, not the Christian dying and rising. See, in the Christian, the Christian entree to that new man is the dying and the rising. But for Ahab, it is to it is the fabrication of this titanic Promethean invincible character. And key to it is no eyes to look outward. One of the problems with looking outward is it's very dangerous because you may see something that will m- make it through the armor. The eyes are the chink in the armor. And one of the things you may see is somebody else's eyes. And they ha- somebody else's eyes have particular potency when it comes to breaking through that chink in the armor so he says no eyes at all just a skylight in the top of the head so he can see inward to see himself next chapter ahab was told by starbuck that there is a leak in the hole that the cast uh, in the hole full of sperm oil are leaking and ahab says so what and starbuck says we came out here to get that sperm oil And Ahab says, let it leak. I'm all a leak myself. Yet I don't stop to plug my leak, for who can find it in the deep-loaded hull? Or how hope to plug it even if found in this life's howling gale? Another reference to the problem, you see. I'm all a leak myself. And that's one of the reasons he wanted to have such an impervious New man, new creature, you see. He wanted to somehow contain that thing. And Starbucks says, how about the owners? And here Ahab begins to jettison one after another of the context to his life, the, the limitations. And it's, of course, the limitations that make us human. And he's going to reject them one at a time. How about the owners? What cares, Ahab? Owners? Owners? As if the owners were my conscience. But look ye, the only real owner of anything is its commander. And hark ye, my conscience is in this ship's keel.